This is Andrew Shea for Onward Radio. Um, I've, I've worked with, you know, across the, the, the spectrum in terms of the scale of the organization. But, you know, it's really about aligning those values for me. And and if and it's also about the, the way that you design. I mean, I think a lot of designers work to have a specific outcome. And and in a sense, you're changing behavior without you're finding a way to, to have a, a positive impact or have some impact. And in a sense, you're designing for social change uh, or designing for change. Today on Onward Radio, we're joined by Andrew Shea via Skype from New York City. Andrew is a designer, writer, and educator. In New York, he runs the design studio called Many. There, his work has been featured in Fast Company, Slate, Print, How, Communication Arts, and the podcast 99% Invisible. He is the writer of the book Designing for Social Change and has also written for Core 77, Design Observer, and Good Magazine. Andrew teaches classes at Parsons and Pratt. You can find out more about Andrew at andrewshea.com. Well, welcome, Andrew. Uh, thanks for coming on Onward Radio. Uh, thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was wondering, after reading through all of your things, which spans a vast amount of time, um, you started in politics and philosophy with your undergraduate degrees, but now you're a designer. How did you get there? Oh, long, cutest path. It was torturous at times and confusing most of the way. But uh, um, I, uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah, I studied uh, a degree called politics and philosophy at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and I also studied writing there as well. But but the politics and philosophy degree was essentially like a, essentially like a pre-law degree, and I didn't have any intention of going into law. But I did like some of the classes that you had to be in this degree in order to take. So um, it was more or less a political philosophy um, degree, and and I think what was really interesting for me in terms of the connection between that and design was a few of the philosophers who I who I connected with. Um, in particular, uh, Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein. He's a German philosopher, early 20th century. And uh, I think one of the things that sticks with me even to this day is one thing he mentions as far as um, uh, language games and, and the dissonance between specialization and the people who it's for. So, you know, the expert and the audience, in a sense. And, and for him, he was, he was looking for just looking for ways to sort of break down those barriers and and to help connect, almost bridge the information and and the people who it's who it can can be for. That sounds like design. Exactly right. Yeah, there you go. That's I know. how the connection happened, right? Yeah, I, I mean, he goes into a lot of depth about it, and it talks about language and description and sort of all kinds of uh, really uh, more nuanced uh, details. But but for me, that was. First of all, that was what led me out of philosophy because I realized philosophy is very, <laughs> very specialized. And I have some friends who are philosophers, and I, I highly respect what they do. But it's 
It's definitely not my interest. You have to um, get you have to definitely get like a PhD if you want to do anything like professionally with a with a philosophy yeah. degree. Yeah. Wasn't in the yeah. cards for you. No, no. I mean, I, I don't think I have that level of concentration. <laughs> <laughs> I can do an MA, MFA, but I don't know if I can do a PhD. And you did do an MFA, so I did do an MFA, yeah. And and uh, you know, so for me that led me to to be curious about the sort of creative, um, creative arts largely. And so I did some experiment, uh, experimentation in terms of the kinds of things I was interested in, video, photography, curating. And it just led me to making show posters basically. And I was like, oh, I really like this. This is, you know, I like writing, I like video photography and it kind of connects, um, you know, making those posters kind of connected all those into. Were you in college form. when you were doing these show posters or were you, were you out? I was out of college. So um, after I graduated from Pittsburgh, I moved to Boston and was living there for f- six years total. What part of Boston? I, I lived in Brookline for about a year. Oh, Brookline. I, I didn't live there, um, but I lived in um, a bunch of different parts of Boston. I started by living in uh, Medford, which is kind of uh, uh, west of Cambridge. Then I lived in West Roxbury, which is south, and then Southie, which is where oh my god, you know, yeah, like Goodwill <laughs> Hunting is kind of exactly. Um, Dorchester for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and then for the when I started making the posters, I was living in Chinatown, and Chinatown is you know it's it's right in the center of where all the trains come, and and I and I was living in the this sort of like commercial loft space, and and I was able to like put on shows there, so it was more or less a performance gallery and. And I just wanted to sort of cut my teeth on on sort of curating a little bit. And and uh, the only stipulation for anybody who was involved in it was that I had to make the show posters. Um, sure. And it was the rules. You made the rules. With I you. made the rules. Yeah. I had to clean the floors afterwards. So. <laughs> well, your like great. resume is that not only are you a philosopher and writer that you you know did in your undergraduate degree, but you know you're also um, an entrepreneur, a designer, an educator an author, and I would actually say a journalist too. I, I think your writing is very journalistic and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that in any negative way. I think that's a very, um, I think that's the tone you've taken in a lot of the pieces that you've written for like Core 77 and, and Good Magazine and things like that. Um, after the show posters, uh, did you go and get an MFA or was there some things in between? Because you got an MFA in at MICA, I believe, right? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, so... That was that. It was a, a fantastic program. I went to the GD MFA program. Alan Lupton um, at the time was the head of the program. Jennifer Cole Phillips is now the head of the program. But it's just a very it was a very supportive environment for me. Um, so my uh, my wife and I um, we ended up getting married the day before we moved to Baltimore. But we knew we were moving to Baltimore, and uh, I, we weren't exactly. Sh- I mean, she was doing a postdoc in at Johns Hopkins. She's a scientist. And uh, for well, that me, that makes sense. Baltimore. I know, yeah, exactly. She she does uh, soft tissue engineering, not engineering, but uh, mechanical properties of soft tissue, mm-hmm. and found a really interesting collaborator there. Uh, and for me, I I knew that I was interested in graphic design, and I applied to Micah. I wasn't sure that I had gotten in until I think it was the the day that I moved there. Uh, or we had our mail forwarded to, to that address, and. And it was like the best way to move to a city is to get an <laughs> yeah, acceptance yeah. letter to a college. <laughs> was it like uh, in, in undergraduate where you get the big letter and that means you're in versus like the tiny, you know, 
envelope. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it. I think it was, and I think that also. I also had gotten an email from from Ellen about uh, getting accepted too. So it was it was a good trifecta of uh, of uh, things happening. Um, At Micro, you studied social design, or we'll mm-hmm. talk about that term in a minute. Did you go there um, to Micah just thinking about graphic design in general, or were you more interested in a very, which what you do now in terms of writing and doing things around social impact? Uh, what was the uh, you know chicken and the egg thing there? Was it mm-hmm. went there with that in mind, or you learned it there? Um, I would say I largely learned it there in the sense that I started practicing it there, but. And I went there thinking about the writing aspect because Ellen um, had really sort of pioneered a, a you know, a, a program that included publishing, and I didn't really see that in any other, um, you know, degree in the country. You're right. Yeah. So for me, it was it was a really happy marriage of uh, of using something that I had sort of gotten a degree in. I got a degree in creative nonfiction writing. But at the you know when I graduated from undergrad, I didn't really have anything to do with that. I, I started writing like these, you know, sort of memoir esque things, and and they were terrible. So <laughs> so I, I realized that talking about myself is not what I like to do during writing. Um, so you know, very early on, um, we had opportunities to start thinking about um, writing and how to, for example, create reviews of exhibitions or books. And, um, and you're right that I think my, my tone is often very journalistic. It just sort of naturally evolved that way. Um, it was soon after I got there, though, that I met um, Ryan Clifford, uh, who was actually a, a year ahead of me, and who now um, works there as he helps with the, with the MA program in social design and also the Center for Social Design Practice, or Center for Design Practice, which is very similar to... Um, on an undergraduate level to the social design program. In any case, those two guys, um, Ryan and Bernard Caniff, um, they, they were in, incredibly in, influential in terms of me thinking about how design um, can be used to make a positive impact. And, and I, I think this is something that I always had cared about. I didn't really want to go into advertising or, um, or at least sort of advertising things that uh, is just selling more products that people don't need. Exactly. But you know, I, I wanted to find a way to, to sort of harness design to to feel proud about what I'm doing, but also to benefit other people. Um, What's that Victor Papanek quote about design and advertising? I think it's something like uh, advertisers get you to buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people that don't care. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> quotation marks around that. That was perfect. Yeah, that was pretty close. Yeah. Um, yeah. The word social design. You mentioned, and I mentioned earlier on today, uh, do you like that term to describe uh, what you do? And um, maybe you can tell us more about what you do with and what you have done with your graduate degree. Sure, sure. Um, it's a funny term. I, I, you know, the title of my book is Designing for Social Change. And so I, I really liked that term. And I, I still do like that term. I, I guess I prefer it. Not just because the name of my book is is that, but <laughs> it's a good but, reason to like this. <laughs> um, I'm wedded to it. Um, but you know, it's it for me. It's that it's that ing after designing or after design that I really like. It's that the active process of being part of of doing something, um, which is which is improving something mm-hmm. and making a positive a change. Social design, admittedly, is the default term for this, and you know, it's 
to me, it's fine. It's just, we, we have a lot of jargon in our different industries. And I think um, we as designers sort of get caught up in, in what social design or design for change or design for impact mean. Um, you know, I think it just depends on, on who you're communicating that, that with or who you're trying to talk to about this kind of design work. Uh, but for, for sort of like shorthand, it's fine with me for sure. Um, I have some yeah. friends that work at Facebook and they talk about what they do is social design and uh, mm-hmm. in terms of connecting people online. And I tell them, okay, well, there's another way to describe that that term. Um, they don't seem to, to see that as um, something that, you know, which is better, you know, the way that yeah. we're talking about social design, the way that they're talking about social design. And it led me to ask you that question is, is social design the right term for the work that you do? And it seems like Facebook is co-opting it for what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, that was the nature of this. I mean, it's, it will be co-opted and corporations across the border are starting to think about how they can sort of jump on board and also just incorporate the, 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 um, the insights of this field into what they do, which is great. Um, you know, for me, I think about social design as being designing to be socially, environmentally, and economically responsible. Um, and that basically means trying to have a positive impact um, in, in, in my design work and in partnering with people who, um, who have similar goals, uh, whether it's a small nonprofit or a large foundation um, I've, I've worked with, you know, across the, the, the spectrum in terms of the scale of the organization, but, you know, it's really about aligning those values for me. And, and if, and it's also about the, the way that you design. I mean, I think a lot of designers work to have a specific outcome and, and in a sense, you're changing behavior without you're finding a way to, to have a, a positive impact or have some impact. And in a sense, you're designing for social change, uh, or designing for change. Well, it seems like you do that as well uh, currently, and you have a design studio called Many, mm-hmm. and it seems like that's something that you're able to do from the outside quite well. Um, can you talk more about how you're able to practice this in a, a typical design practice? Sure, yeah. I mean, I have the luxury of living in New York where there's a lot of um, cause-based organizations and foundations, and, and it, it allows me to sort of you know, if I was living in a smaller town, it would be more challenging to to define clientele, for example, who's, who's who wants this kind of work done. But, but essentially, every project I I, um, I start and my, my clients and partners I work with, we talk about what is the impact that you're trying to look for here, and you know, if there's an opportunity for me to suggest ways to have a, a, a create a social impact or use more environmentally friendly materials. Um, or you know to to reframe the way they're thinking about connecting with an audience, I I blend that expertise and and you know it's a it's a really great part of the conversation you can have with a client because they might be thinking about this, but largely they're you're usually thinking about the end goal of a product, um, and and it doesn't always include thinking about the social aspects or the environmental aspects of of their mission or or their or the way they're representing themselves. I talked to another guy in Seattle earlier in the season about his studio, which does similar things. And he mentioned that for him, it's easier to work and um, achieve some of his goals of social impact 
with groups or organizations or companies that are already like-minded to that. Mm -hmm. Do you find that be the case with yourself as well? Yeah, most certainly. I mean, I work with, uh, I mean, I would say in terms of getting um, people emailing me and asking for me to partner with them, it's these organizations that already have sort of found me based on my book or a client who already is like a nonprofit and has a specific kind of um, cause. But yeah, I mean, I, I do get people who email me just about, you know, design work and they don't really think about those those kind of questions. But But yeah. When you do get a client that may not be, I don't know, necessarily on the same wavelength as you from the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, have you been, have you found ways to be pretty successful in, in changing the way they view design or, or what they need from a, from the aspect of mm-hmm. sustainability and social impact? Certainly. And I, I think for me, this, this goes back to like the creative brief and the importance of the creative brief. And I think a lot of designers, um, maybe even just designers who are, are getting started, don't put as much emphasis on that. But the creative brief is this opportunity to really raise all the questions that you um, that you want to have a conversation about, and uh, you know, thinking about what the question is from the client, and then unpacking that to really the roots um, and the foundation of of the potential social impact is is really kind of a fun process. Um, and you know, so that's that's for me. That's that's when I have that conversation with clients and. And um, and usually they're not thinking about those issues, but it's um, it's a chance to really sort of um, see the, the the true value of of this project or what, any project and and what it really can be. Well, you mentioned your book a couple times now, and I think it's fair that we should talk about your book. It came from your graduate thesis um, at uh, MICA. Um, how did it all come to pass? Well, it came to pass. Um, because I was actually working as a TA in Bernard Canet's class, who, if anybody has an opportunity to be a TA in his class, <laughs> they should. He's a, such a charismatic, warm person and um, nurtures uh, students in, in, um, in a really great way. So, Well, you sold me on it. I think I'm going to Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he gave me the opportunity to basically just lead a, a project and um, in Baltimore at the time, he you know basically had a lot of different nonprofits and organizations come to him and say, "Hey, we want to do a project with you." And, and so I, I was working with an organization um, that was supports an, uh, uh, people who have neurofibromatosis. So it's a tongue twister. Uh, <laughs> <It> sure is. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, so you know I worked with them, and it was it turned out to be a really frustrating project for me. Um, and you know I would say it didn't go well in, in a bunch of ways. What but, happened? What happened? What didn't? Why didn't it go so well? Well, it was it was the communication that um, uh, that I what we were having with the client and and trying to make sure that we were on the same page about things, um, and also to think about um, the, the scope and scale of the of the project. Um, so first of all, I mean, we, we the people there at um, this organization are really wonderful, and and I and the conversations we were having with them were very seemed productive but it was not we weren't understanding um, the scope and the scale of the project in a way which made what we were trying to do feasible so we basically just bit off more than we can chew and uh, and in the end they didn't accept the, the, the designs that the students had created mm-hmm. so I learned about a lot about leadership in that project but I also learned 
that I had a lot to learn. <laughs> and uh, and that was that was a, a blessing in disguise because even though it was really frustrating for me, that's when I really started digging. Um, and I realized that I had a lot of questions. And, and you know, when I was talking with Ellen Lupton about potential thesis projects, and I took her like five or six different projects that I had in mind, um, you know, she's just, well, this is a rich project. You're already passionate about it. And, you know, I can see this being, you know, something which could be published in the future. So I had no promises um, about it being published. And obviously it wasn't up to her for that to, to happen. But, but I'm, a, I'm one of those people who, um, who just loves a big project. And so I, um, so I, I, you know, I, I set my sights on creating a proposal as part of my thesis and got together a series of projects that I thought might be good. At the time, it was really difficult to find projects out there. Um, the websites weren't quite evolved. Um, there were no books on the topic. And, and for me, I was just asking people who they knew. And, um, you know, organizations like SAPI were uh, a great place to look. Um, and, uh, and that's really where I started my, my hunt. So were you talking to organizations um, like SAPI um, about um... – helping to publish your book or, or why were you talking to those, with those groups? Good question. I, I was pretty much just looking at their website and seeing the design studios who were doing work in this field. Um, whether, yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the book is not just uh, design studios. It incorporates student work and incorporates, um, you know, organizations from across the country. It incorporates uh, professional design work as well. But I, I was just trying to find, um, more or less a, a, a baseline of projects that that could inspire me or that could um, give me the opportunity to have conversations with organizations who are doing this kind of work. Uh, and, you know, that was the basis of the book is just having conversations with uh, different organizations and people who are working on projects and, and kind of combining insights from different sources into what the book became. Well, to all the uh, aspiring authors out there, do you have any tips for them? I know you had a great ac uh, advocate in Ellen Lupton yeah. helping you. What kind of uh, tips do you have for those who are thinking about writing about design or want to publish a book in the future? Well, I think a lot of um, designers are afraid of the writing process. And it's and that's I'm guessing there's a lot of people out there who have great ideas for books. And uh, I would just encourage uh, anybody who has an idea in mind to understand that the writing process is very similar to the design process. Mm -hmm. and, I would agree a hundred percent on that. Yeah. You're working on something I hear too. So you, you're probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, there's a plug for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's a very similar process, but it's, you know, it just like a design process, it waxes and wanes in terms of, um, the, the speed that certain parts of it go in. And uh, just stick with it. Like any project, just getting started is the hardest part. Yeah, one of the things you also write about, and, and I think you're aware of this because it happens quite often, is you write about um, changing habits. Mm -hmm. And you also have some projects out there, too. And one that interested me a lot was the Revolving Doors project. And um, this got you on a different podcast called 99% uh, Invisible, mm. as well as some pretty good press on like Good Magazine. Um, can you talk about um, your interest in habits and, and how you see those potentially influencing social change through design? Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I think 
so I actually had a funny story, that project in particular. Uh, at my thesis defense, I had a whole bunch of friends come from uh, different cities, and one of them came from Boston, and he and he didn't quite know what I was doing for my thesis leading up to his visit. And so he got there. He's like designing for a social change. And so this he guy's... came to your thesis defense? Just... Oh, not know. my defense, but my exhibition. Oh, gotcha. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> no, I was a little bit like, wow, that's that's a good friend. That would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a really great friend. And he uh, he's actually a material scientist. And, you know, he has probably very similar values to me in terms of what he expects from design. But he, you know, he didn't quite see what I was doing with my thesis. And he's like, well, if you really want to change, um, you know, design for social change, get people to use that. And he was pointing out a revolving door. Um, and, and I was like, oh, he's so right. This is all about behavior. And, you know, I I'd had conversations with people uh, during my research about the importance of behavior, but I didn't quite have a reference point for what that looked like. And so for me, I started thinking about, you know, how environment can influence our behaviors and our in our in our actions, how design can do that as well. Obviously, design does it all the time um, by getting us to buy things, by getting us to sort of turn left and turn right, you know, all kinds of ways. But that led me to really think about, you know, what what goes into um, changing behavior, and habits is a really important part of that um, because every one of our behaviors. Uh, a lot of them uh, are automatic. And I, I see our role, like the way that we live in, our, in the world as being almost like a robot at times where we make choices based on, on the um, things around us. And it's just, you know, the, the, the reason we act a certain way at times is because we're trying to make our life easier. And so we learn these habits, um, whether it's, uh, you know, the fastest way to work or um, ways to make food faster, like it, all these things become very habituated. Um, so yeah, revolving doors became a way for me to sort of test some ideas about habits and about the way that we are influenced by uh, our environment in particular. And that's been my, uh, I guess, one of my passion projects, uh, side projects for sure. Well, you put a number of different signs and different mm -hmm. designs of the signs next to doors to tell them to use the revolving door. And what, what I found interesting in your photographs is the most generic plain sign stuck up there with tape and you could see the tape that got the most, um, you said, um, percentage of people to actually use the revolving door in comparison to like the, I think more better designed signs. Uh, why do you think that was? Well, for me, the way I think about it is, um, um, disruption and that's a very well used term these days, but, uh, disrupting the way that we experience our environment. Uh, and that was kind of what that sign did. Uh, it, it was such a, an ugly sign that people ended up, uh, <laughs> I think, had good typography, it. though, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's a couple of things that really guided people's behaviors in that project. One of them was just seeing something different on, that, on the swinging door in particular. So instead of uh, walking up to the swinging door and pushing through it, they walked up and saw this ugly sign on it and um, and decided to follow it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is size. I mean, it's, you know, bigger is better is, um, is uh, always the case and or often the case in design. But you know, a larger sign gets more attention um, and a larger sign um, is easier to communicate from a distance, for example. So a lot of this became about user experience 
in, in, in an environment. So those two factors, the idea of it being uh, a disruptive uh, sign, but also one which is uh, larger to read and easier to see from a distance, became the kind of the guiding forces behind that project in terms of understanding behavior change or seeing behavior change. Well, it seems to me that choosing what door to go into is is a small habit. And, and mm-hmm. I've experienced this myself in my own work. A lot of times it seems like these smaller habits are the easiest to change. And potentially these changes of smaller habits can lead to bigger habits being changed. Um, do you find this as well? And um, do you think if if that is the case, that this could really help influencing social change? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think um, you're right. Small habits can lead to bigger habits. And uh, I did actually did a project in uh, a class I teach at Pratt with my co-teacher there, David Frisco, and uh, it was all about habits and it was personal habits. And it was so students paired up with each other and they ended up um, designing uh, solutions for their partner to help them break a habit they either wanted to start or stop. Uh, and and what I learned from that was just the awareness level. If uh, as students became more aware of their habits, they uh, they started to change them more quickly. So I think as designers can um, work in the field of design for change or design for behavioral change, uh, the more they can start to incorporate these small um, design uh, interventions. Let's say uh, the more opportunities will see uh, they'll have to actually change people's habits and to make people aware of these habits. Yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to do is I, I'd like to pay you a compliment. You're, you're a very um, intelligent person from the standpoint that you know, the work that you've already done as sort of a foundation. Uh, but something that's interesting about you is that you're as much, I think, as an academic in the design world as you are a design practitioner. And that's oh, really thanks. challenging to find. You know, a lot of times people just tend to go one place or another. So I'm really interested in your opinion on this question because mm-hmm. of all the insight you have. Um, and that is, where do you think design should be in the future? If, if not where it should already be now Yeah. Uh, in connection to, you know, the things that we're seeing happen in the world, like these global uh, climate change with mm-hmm. uh, just social inequities, et cetera. Yeah. Um, well, thanks a lot for that compliment. It's really nice of you to say. Oh, no, you're welcome. Um, no. um, I, I love working in, um, you know, in design and writing and teaching because for me, it's like having a different kind of conversation about design. And it, allow, it informs I think the way I think about the world, but also about my practice. And so I think um, that's probably why I can't help but keep my fingers in all the pies. Uh, <laughs> you wear many hats, that's for yeah. sure. But in any case, the, um, you know, where is design going? Where should it go? And I, I've, there's a couple of things that I think are really important for the future of design. And one of them is finding ways to get more designers into the conversations. Uh, you know, you mentioned climate change and all these problems that are happening in the world. Uh, and uh, designers need to be collaborating um, in teams that are not full of designers. And I think this is a, something which is coming to light more and more. And I'm, I'm happy to see that more designers across the board are, are doing this kind of work. But you know, I'm hoping in the future um, we'll have designers working in government, um, have designers working in um, you know every industry across the board, and really thinking about sort of the, the, the personal um, 
value they can bring to these organizations. And that's not a, it's not an easy thing to collaborate across uh, disciplines, largely because everybody has their own process and sort of breaking down the jargon, breaking down the um, sort of the procedures that we're all used to becomes a real, um, a real bear. Um, yeah, you but that, speak different languages at times. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I teach a class right now, which is, um, half policy and half design, um, which in the, I've done this for, for three semesters now. And what I've learned is the biggest challenge is just finding a way to have a conversation between these two disciplines. Um, but it's happening and I'm excited to see this happening more and more. So that's one thing. I, I think another thing is having designers be more um, uh, f cognizant of the importance of uh, measuring impact and really understanding um, what they do as something which has an influence on something else. And there's a lot of great energy in this field right now. Um, uh, I know um, recently, just I think just last week uh, here at maybe it was at SF. Um, SVA, there is a, a panel talk about uh, social impact, and Ansley Whipple and Gilad Moran were were um, were are, are behind this as well as some other people as well. Ansley's from Des Design Ignites Change. Right? Exactly. Right, yeah. Right. And Gilad, as I think, is uh, trained as an architect, but works in a lot of different ways. And Public Interest Design is one organization that he is heavily um, involved with. So. Great, uh, two great people um, who are doing some um, awesome, awesome work in this field. So I would say those two things are, are really um, important. Um, and then, you know, I think, you know, uh, finding ways to share what we, what we do. That's one probably one reason why I just continue to write. And it's just even even if it is just sort of like a review of something, it's it's a way of sharing um, the impact or or your insights about a project. And I'm happy to say that this is happening more and more too, um, as I think probably most designers are noticing. There's a lot more books coming out about design for social mm -hmm. impact. Um, there are more blogs. There are people who are just interested in this topic. And so more of this is, is better. It's kind it's, of at a tipping point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what do you plan on doing in the future? Um, well, I think I'm, you know, I, I continue to work in these three fields of design writing and um and teaching, and um, but I also plan on um, focusing a lot of my energy on um, on behavioral design, and I love the sort of path of understanding how behavior can be changed to design, and really sort of showing examples of that. And so, you know, in my writing as well as my teaching and in my personal practice, I'm, I want to find ways to continue to broaden that um, discussion. Well, we're running really close to time here, and I wanted to ask one more question. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, how, who would you like to see on the show? Ah, great question. Um, well, I just mentioned Galad um, Moran and um, Ansley Whipple. I think both of those would be fantastic um, for the work they're doing um, across the social impact field, as well as their behavioral design um, sort of interest. Uh, I think also, uh, you know, one of one of my close friends and a uh, guy who does incredible work across the board, uh, Ryan Clifford um, from MICA. I just, you know, we became fast friends in grad school, and I just, I just love seeing what he's involved in, and and uh, you know, I think this week actually he's in Greensboro, Alabama, doing right. a workshop um, with MICA students uh, around the idea of thinking wrong, um, and. 
Yeah, exactly. Project M. And, you know, he is just nonstop. I don't, sometimes I don't understand where he gets his energy, but, uh, but, you know, he's been working very heavily in this field and, and I would love to hear more about uh, his insights in terms of where things are going. Well, we kicked and, off this season with Project M and it yeah. seemingly keeps on coming back to that every time. Yeah, uh, John Billenberg's done some incredible work and, um, and it's, you know, a lot of influence has, has been passed on to other designers like myself. So, yeah. Well, thank That's you, Andrew. Good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. And it, it was a real pleasure um, hearing about uh, what you do and, and your thoughts on, on the design profession. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah, bye. This episode is sponsored by a generous donation from Celery Design. Celery believes good design is a powerful force. They aim to make it a force for good by building strong brands for sustainable products, services, and programs. You can learn more about Celery at CeleryDesign.com.